0: Well, the Lord may the Lord be magnified and glorified in us as we turn our attention to His Word in Luke chapter 19. You'll find our passage this morning, which we shall consider by God's grace, on page 879. That's Luke 14. Uh, excuse me, 19, beginning in verse 45. And as always, I would encourage you to have a copy of God's Word open as we consider His truth. And It might aid you as we seek to know Him better and to follow Him more faithfully. So Luke 19, verse 45, Hear now the Word of God. And He entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do for all the people were hanging on his words. Our father, we are thankful for your word now as it reveals to us, the Lord, we ask that you would speak to us today. And that if we are, if you are willing, if we may hear your voice through your word, may we by your grace not harden our hearts to it. But that we would receive it with glad and submissive souls. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, centuries and centuries ago, the famous author Homer tells the ancient story of Odysseus, the king of Ithaca, and his adventurous return home from the Trojan War, a a voyage that would take him ten years, overcoming many troubles, trials, usually through his cunning and his wit. And so Odysseus would outsmart the lotus eaters and the man-eating cyclops and the boulder-throwing giants and the enchanting sirens and the six-headed monsters and the ship-destroying whirlpools and even an enticing myth promising him eternal youth and companionship. He overcame it all, trial, trouble, temptation, out of his desire to return home, which he eventually would do after 10 years. But it's been 10 years. That's a long time to not have any word from the king. It's been a long time since he's been away. What would he find when he returned home? But 108 suitors, wooing his faithful wife Penelope, all of whom were living in his house, even threatening the life of his son, lest his wife choose one to marry, history is, of course, full of stories of returning kings, isn't it? And if it's not Odysseus, it's Agamemnon, it's it's Richard the Lionhearted, and 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 the the question is the tension in the story is what will they find when they get home after their long absence? Will usurpers ha- have taken advantage while they have been gone, or, or or do their followers faithfully wait? Are some loyal, quick to recognize the returning king? Like Odysseus's dog, Argus. Or are they self-serving traitors? Well, in some sense, I think Luke 19 uh, is the story of a king returning home. Now, Jesus is coming home, is he not? To Jerusalem, and especially as we see this morning, to the temple... Now, this story of this returning king is far more surprising and complex and nuanced and powerful than all the other stories. He, he doesn't overcome obstacles by his uh, massive strength or his cunning wit, but by his love and self-sacrifice. But this, make no mistake, I think is a story of a king returning to his city. It is the story of, a, of the God coming to his temple. And what would he find when he returned? the sons of Israel who have trusted in this invisible God for centuries finally could see Him? Would He be received with praise and adoration of loyal followers who have been faithfully waiting the fulfillment of the prophets' announcements? Or would He find usurpers in charge willing to do anything to maintain power, even kill the King who has returned? We call really this kind of Part of Scripture that's often called the Passion Week, uh, the last week of Jesus' life. We call it the Passion Week simply from the, the Latin term for suffering. And so we say this is the week that Jesus is suffering. The Passion of Jesus is a reference to His suffering. But we usually don't use the word passion that way to refer to suffering. We usually use it to refer to intense emotion, don't we? And in some sense, I think it's, it's the Passion Week in light of that reality, of the intense emotions that we see in Jesus. We saw last week, did we not, that Jesus, amidst the praise and adoration of of these people who line the streets, sees Jerusalem and He begins to sob over their rejection and their eventual judgment. And we see His passion there. And we see it no less today, not in His sobbing, but in His fierce anger over the abuse of the temple. As Luke records in verse 45, he simply says, "...and He entered the temple..." And began to drive out those who sold. Now Luke is very brief in his account and simply explaining what Jesus did, like he drove them out. But Luke does not tell us how he did it. We need to turn to the other gospels in order to discover how violent Jesus was in this act. We we, we would see that he overturned tables and he threw chairs and he blocked the entrance to the courtyard. He even made a whip. And began to use it as he drives out what Luke says, the people, you see that there in verse 45, those who sold, the the people who were selling. We know this, of course, is the time of Passover. And we remember that the Jews would celebrate annually the the Passover feast, which is a reminder how God's wrath had passed over them because of the sacrifice of a lamb without blemish, a sacrificial lamb. And in many ways, what we'll do today is we will, we will take the Passover meal. I mean, That's what the Lord's Supper is. Jesus celebrating the last, uh, la- last Supper, or the Lord's Supper, redefines it for us as we too remember that God's wrath has passed over us through the shed blood and the broken body of our unblemished Passover lamb, namely Jesus Christ. But in, but in these days, the pilgrims would come to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover there'd be millions of them coming and each family unit needed a lamb without blemish to sacrifice now uh, have, have you have you ever gone like on a, a long travel traveled for days if you have um, especially with small children you'll realize there are particular challenges to that uh, but but we we are blessed enough not only to take our 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 little nation but we we take our dogs with us you ever travel with dogs that don't like travel right and uh, usually what you find there well usually the car begins to have a very distinct odor within 10 minutes or so and and then you'll find a, a half gallon of drool on the the back seat and and often uh the dogs lunch typically we make our dogs fast for like three days before we go anywhere okay right it's a mess Well, imagine traveling for a long time, not by car and not for a day, but by foot and for days. Would you really like to bring with you a baby lamb, a baby sheep? Of course you wouldn't. You have enough issues. And so what you would do is you would travel leaving all your lambs at home. And once you get to Jerusalem, you would buy one in order to sacrifice it for the Passover lamb. This is this is what you do. And so when 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 Luke tells us that Jesus drove out those who sold, he's referring to those who are selling the Passover lambs and other sacrificial animals. Now, that, of course, raises the question, why? Because they need to sacrifice a lamb. Why was Jesus so mad? Well, he tells us, doesn't he, in verse 46, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Now, we, we know a few things that are happening here. We know that because the demand for these sacrificial animals was high, the prices were extremely high. Right? They, they had a captive market. They could pretty much charge what they want. We also know that at this time... Uh, In Palestine, people would use different types of currency depending on where you live. But when you come to the temple, the temple would only take one kind of currency, the shekel, if I remember correctly. And so before you would have to buy the animal, you would have to trade your money over. This is why the other Gospels refer to the money changers. And we, we know the exchange rates were extremely high. And we also know this was all under the control of the high priest, Annas, at the time, who took a cut of every exchange and every animal that was bought. And so the, the Jewish historian Josephus would call this market the bazaar of Annas. The great procurer of money. This, of course, was a man who's, who by divine privilege was supposed to serve God's people and, and, and protect the temple. And instead, he's, he's fleecing them to line his own pockets. And as I mentioned, he's doing it all in the temple. It has become... A den of robbers. In fact, this den of robbers is actually a quote from a famous sermon that Jeremiah gave in Jeremiah chapter 7. If you're looking for something to read this week, you might turn there. It's a powerful and scathing sermon that jeremiah gives standing in really right in front of the temple and you could imagine this in in your mind's eye i think with with the pillars on either side the the weeping prophet stands before the gathered worshipers and says to them hear the word of the lord all you people who come through the gates to worship the lord this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says, reform your ways and your actions and I will let you live in this place. Do not trust the deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. In other words, what the prophet is saying, or what other people are saying, rather, is they're saying it doesn't matter how we live doesn't matter what we do. doesn't matter if we obey or not. We have the temple. That's where God lives, and therefore God will protect us. God will provide for us because He lives in our midst. And and Jeremiah says, you are deceiving yourself. In fact, he continues, and God speaks to the prophet, saying, will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods, and then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name, and say we are safe. Safe to do all these detestable things? Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers? You see, in Jeremiah's day, just like in Jesus' day, that there are there are people of God, if I can use that term loosely, who are saying, You you can live a life of greed and idolatry and disobedience, and you'll be okay. As long as you offer your, your kind of routine praise and, and prayers and your offerings to God. So live however you want and just go through the motions and you'll be okay. And this is what they were doing in Jeremiah's day and Jesus' day. And, and Jeremiah and Jesus both say they've turned this place into a house of thieves. This is a, this is a house of criminals seeking their own greed. And unfortunately, this did not end, by the way, in Jesus' day. It says continue throughout the history of the church. It will be on October 31st that most of you probably are now aware of. This year, that will be the 500th anniversary of the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. Started by a, 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 a Augustinian German monk named Martin Luther, who was so appalled at the current practices in the church by the Roman Catholic Church that would, would promise through the sale of an indulgence that your loved one who is suffering in purgatory may be freed from the torments of that place with a simple donation to the Pope's building project in Rome. They even had a little ditty that they would sing. as uh, goes something like, whenever a coin in the coffer rings, another soul from purgatory springs. Right, Just give us some money and we will be happy to free your dead loved ones from a place of torment. Now I'm afraid that didn't end in 500 years ago. This nonsense continues even in this day. Just turn on the television. And you will find TV preachers who will say, "Yes, please send us your prayer request with a small donation and we will be happy to lift that up to the Lord. For instance, Paula White, TV preacher who prayed, by the way, At the president's inauguration last year um, or this year, I guess it was last year in her sermon from John 1144 explained if you send her eleven hundred and forty four dollars. She will in turn send you a prayer cloth which will bring resurrection power. I'm quoting her. "Whoever is dead, Whatever is dead in your life, the prayer cloth will bring back to life for the small, small sum of $1,144. You see, in Jesus' day, and our last day, there are people in the name of God who will offer you access to God for a price. And they will be obstacles to the Gospel. They will keep people from God. And we... As Hamilton Baptist Church would do well to pray that we would never, like the temple in this day, keep people from God. You realize that the temple was the place that God's name was supposed to be most clearly proclaimed. And it became the center of opposition to him. And I would suggest to you that is sadly true for tens of thousands of churches in our land that do not bring people to God, but actually stand in the way, pray that in the years to come, this would never be said of this people called Hamilton Baptist Church, that God would keep us faithful to Him because such behavior infuriates Jesus. You see He's very violent here. He's throwing over tables and chairs and whips and and all the rest. This is gentle Jesus, meek and mild, right? Swinging a whip and yelling at the top of his lungs, I don't know. Have you ever seen a table flipped over? That—that that is, that's a violent act, isn't it? It has not happened in my house. In case you doesn't hurt my child. <laughs> Rest assured. Um, but you know, can you imagine? Would that be like you go out to lunch today? And, you know, maybe you're, you're almost done and, and, and you get up and you just throw the table over. You think that might get some people's attention? Mm-hmm. That is not your application for the sermon, by the way. Jesus is very, very angry. This is peasant Jesus and there is thunder in his voice and fire in his eyes. He hated what he saw. He came home and his house had been taken over by robbers and he he begins to set it right. And so what I simply want to do with the time we have is to consider the four four ways in which Jesus is trying to set his home right. What is his home supposed to be like? And I think there's a great application for us. Number one, his home is where he rules. His home is where he rules. Look in verse, again, uh, verse 45. It says, he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold. You notice he just shows up and and he starts rearranging the place, right? He's rearranging the furniture. imagine someone coming into your house and they just start moving your couch and your table around. I mean, who has the right to do that? It was the owner of the house, right? He's acting like he owns the place because he does. In fact, it's interesting that this is all happening at the Passover because according to the Passover tradition, The family would have to clean their house the week of Passover. They would have to rid it of all the leaven, which is the symbol of sin. And before Jesus offers himself as the Passover lamb, what does he do? He first cleans his house. Let's get rid of the sin, he says. I mean, even listen to how he talks there in verse twenty-six, He says, this is my house, he says, as he quotes Scripture, the the Lord has come home, as the prophet Malachi announced, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple to purge like a refiner's fire. Now, the temple, of course, is, is no longer standing. It was, was we considered last week, it was destroyed in 70 AD. So there's no longer a building called the temple. But the temple continues. And the Scripture tells us in 1 Corinthians 6... That you are the temple. That is, like God dwelt in the temple in a special place, God now dwells in you by His Spirit. His Spirit has come to take up residence in you. You are the temple. That is, my, my Christian brothers and sisters, you are God's house. And we see very clearly that God wants a pure house. And that's the whole point of 1 Corinthians 6. He said, Paul says, how can you sin? How can you bring this impurity and this uncleanliness in if God actually dwells in you? And so if God dwells in you, you know what He's going to do? He's going to rearrange your furniture. One way you know you're a Christian is that God owns you. God makes demands on you. You're His. I think some people are deceived because they say, you know, well, I believe in Jesus, and, but I also believe I should be able to do what I want. And, and you know, and I, I'm not happy in this marriage, so I think I should just be able to walk out on it. I think I I I should be able to lie in this situation. I think I should be able to cheat. I do whatever I want. I tell you, the real Jesus shows up and He doesn't say, okay, well, this is what I was thinking, but what do you think? And maybe we could come to some compromise and we could kind of figure this out. No, He shows up and He says, you do what I say. You bow your knee to Me. I own you. I am your Lord. There's a story that I find so humorous in Acts 19. And Paul is planting a church there. I believe it's Ephesus, if I remember correctly. And Paul's doing all this miraculous activity in Acts 19. And people are watching Paul do all these miracles. And he keeps doing them in the name of Jesus. And there are seven men there who think, well, that would be really cool to have that kind of power. These are the seven sons of, of a man named Sceva. And, and, and so they say, well, we need to try this. There's, there's power in this name, Jesus. And so they actually find a demon-possessed man and they walk up to this demon-possessed man and they say to these seven grown men, they say to this man, in the name of Jesus, come out. And the demon-possessed man looks at them and he says, wait a second. Uh, Jesus I know. And Paul I know. But who in the, who in the world are you guys? Right? Right? I was trying to talk like a demon would, okay? <laughs> okay who are and you know what he does he jumps them and he begins to beat them bloody to the, all seven of them to the point where they have to run away from him completely naked through the city streets and you see what were what what, what they what they thought is that Jesus is magical Right, If I use the name Jesus, I'll get what I want. But they had no relationship with Him. And I wonder how many people are like these men who ask Jesus for strength or help or, you know, you know, I'm in a bit of a jam here. Can't you help me out? And they'll come to Him. But they don't obey Him. And they, they don't seek Him. And they don't have any real relationship to Him. And they just use Him like, like He's an abracadabra. And Jesus comes and He comes home and He says, I'm not here to hang curtains. I am here to rule. I am here to clean house, and you are mine. And my brothers and sisters, if you truly belong to Jesus, one of the ways you know is he will he will rearrange your life. He will convict you of sin. He will burden you with the things that should not be in your life. And I think it'd be very helpful for you and I to recognize the wrath that God has at sin in His house. And so, you know what we're going to do? Um, we're going to take a, just a, we're going to pause right here. And, and I, I'm going to ask everybody, just we're just for a moment, and I'm not going to get weird on you. I just want you to close your eyes and bow your head. And we're going to just pray silently to the Lord. Um, and this is we, we usually do this to prepare for communion, so we're just going to do it right now if we can. And in light of these truths, I simply want you to ask the Lord right now by His Spirit to show you what is impure in your life. Will you pray that to Him? And now I I would like you to pray. Knowing the disdain that Jesus has for sin in His temple, that you would ask Him to drive out the uncleanness in your life. Lord, we, we are... We are the dwelling place of the Spirit of God. And there is greed. And there is lust. And there is pride. And there is prayerlessness in our lives. Please, drive it from us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I would encourage you over lunch today, Maybe you can invite some friends out to lunch. You would take the courage to ask, what did you ask the Lord to drive from you? Some of you have just kind of stale in your relationship with God. You don't, ru- you don't know why you're not progressing. And one of the reasons you're not progressing is because you're, you're not bringing people into your life to help you. Right? We all have things we need to get out of our life. And it would be helpful to have accountability on those things. The second truth we see is that His home is a house of prayer. His home is a house of prayer. Note, he says in verse 46 here um, that, that my house shall be, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer. See, the temple is the place where you go and encounter the Lord. There's a place that you would go and pray. I mean, we have the great example of Hannah, of course, in 1 Samuel chapter 1. Draw near to God in this way in prayer. So the temple, therefore, was not to be a a shopping mall. It was not to be a place where you extort people out of greed. But it was to be a a home, a house where you pray, that you, you experience God, that you draw near to God. Now, we know during this time of the Passover, about a quarter million Passover lambs were sold in the temple courtyards every year. And so you can you imagine, in a week, a quarter million transactions taking place. And there's haggling, and there's buying, and there's trading money in, in your currency. And, 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 and in the midst of all this, this is the place where you're supposed to find God. Right? And it would be like moving the trading floor of Wall Street into this building. And say, okay, we're, while you guys do all your trading, we're going to have a prayer meeting. Right? It would be very, very difficult. I mean, there would be a lot of prayer going on, but not the kind that God wants. Right? It would be be almost impossible to, to pray. And see, people are not praying as God intends. They're not meeting with God. Most likely what they're doing is these pilgrims would come and just be besieged by this market. And they would simply buy an animal, make a sacrifice, and get out as fast as they possibly can. And God says, no, 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 the temple's a place you're supposed to know God. It's supposed to encounter God. It's supposed to be a place where you pray to God. And I think there's great warning for us here. Because how many of us are just really going through the motions? Right? Of all the activity, but we're not really seeking God. Now, Tim Keller, I think, often asks, do you pray or do you say your prayers? Right? When we pray, the burden should roll off. The joy should flood our soul. There should be comfort in the Lord. My, my brothers and sisters, are you meeting with God? Or is there just a lot of religious activity in your life with no real connection? A lot of clamor, a lot of noise, but no engagement with God. I I think there is a great temptation. We are so often bombarded with all of the Christian activities and all the things in our lives. There's so much going on that it's so easy, isn't it, to neglect real meaningful pursuit of God. And Jesus is teaching us, let's seek the King. Let's delight in him. Let's adore him. Let's tell him of our love and, and bring to him our trouble and confess to him our sin and seek his help. It is to be a house of prayer. But it's not just a house of prayer for you, it is thirdly a house of prayer for all nations. So consider the, the third uh, uh, reality about this temple is that Jesus' home is a house for all nations. Now, we don't see this here in Luke's Gospel, so I want us, if we can, just to quickly turn over to Mark, which is just one book towards the beginning. And I want you to find your way in Mark chapter 11. Mark 11 is the parallel account of Jesus cleansing the temple, but Mark gives us more detail. In fact, Mark gives us the full quote of what Jesus says when he drives them out. and We see it here in Mark 11 in verse 17, I believe it is. It says here, And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, and note that little phrase there, for all nations. It's a house of prayer for all nations. Now you can turn back to Luke if you would like. Now when Jesus says it is written, it's written in Isaiah 56. In Isaiah 56, God says through the prophet, the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord... To love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, these foreigners, these I will bring to my holy mountain, God says, "That the holy mountain will be Jerusalem, and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a a house of prayer for all nations. Those are the words of Isaiah 56. Now this wasn't Isaiah's innovation, it's always been God's intention that the temple would be a place where the nations would come and find Him. In fact, the very first day of the temple, when the temple was dedicated and all the nation gathered to celebrate Solomon's temple and the, the cloud filled the temple like the glory of the Lord descended upon it. And The Bible says the priests cannot perform their service because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the temple. It's at this that Solomon would spread out his hands to heaven and he would lead the nation in prayers. This beautiful, powerful prayer in First Kings 8. But he almost ends this prayer not praying for the people of Israel, but praying for the nations, praying for the Gentiles. And he says, he prayed as for the foreigner who does not belong to your people but has come from a distant land because of your name. For, he says, men will hear of your great name when he comes and prays towards the temple. Then hear from heaven and do whatever the foreigner asks of you so that all the peoples of the earth may know your name. See, the temple was built as Solomon prayed and the prophet explained was to draw the nations to God. The temple was used for missions. It was a house of prayer for all nations. Now, the question is, why does Jesus quote that verse? Why does he say it's to be a house of prayer for all nations? Well, it's helpful to know the, the kind of the, the architecture of the temple. There is a series of courtyards. As you probably know, the, the outer courtyard, by far the greatest size courtyard, was called the court of the Gentiles. And it's where the Gentiles would come and they would pray and they would seek God. But there was a wall separating that courtyard from the temple. And there's actually a sign over all the doors and the walls. As if a Gentile goes past this point, he will be immediately killed. I mean, they're very serious about this. Paul, as you know, in the book of Acts, started a riot. Because people thought he brought a Gentile past the court of Gentiles. So if you're a Jew, you could go through that wall. And then you would come into the court of women. And this is where the Jewish women can draw near to God, a little bit closer to the temple. But if you're a Jewish man, you go past that courtyard into another courtyard, which is called the court of Israel. And it's there only Jewish men were allowed to draw, and then you'd be right up next to the temple. But of course, you couldn't go in the temple, so you had to be a priest in order to go in the temple. And then in the inner room of the temple, only the high priest could go into that inner room. Now, here's the question, where do they set up the market? Right? The Holy of Holies? No. Court of Israel? No. Court of women? No. It was set up in the, the court of the Gentiles. Right? It, the very place where the nations were to come and find about God, where the nations were to come and make sacrifice to God, the nations were to come to draw near to God, they set up a bazaar. And there was fighting and bickering and haggling and price gouging, all in the worship of the money. And as if that's not bad enough they were doing doing it where missions was supposed to take place they were keeping the nations from god the nation there is a sense saying to the nations you cannot worship our god go away and this evidently makes jesus really angry therefore let's let us hamilton baptist church not repeat these sins i think there's a dangerous temptation for us to forget that part of what we are as a community of people is a missionary people. And that what we're even doing today as we gather together and hear God's word is we want to be more conformed to the likeness of Christ. So we can more faithfully reach the lost. Reach our neighbors and reach the nations. That's why I'm excited for this ministry called Thanks Serving. That you have uh, see this this insert in your bulletin. That for three weeks during November, we as a faith community are going to try to reach out to our nations beginning in week one, just as you as a family unit, and then week two, your community group, and then week three together as a church body, that we too might reach out and understand we need to impact the nations, that we would let God use us to impact the lost, our neighbors, that they might come to know Him. You see, if if Jesus is very angry when we don't do this, I trust He's very pleased when we do. And I hope you'll prayerfully consider how you and I can be used in order to impact the lost around us. The fourth truth that we see here is that Jesus uh, tells us His home is where the truth is proclaimed. Notice verse 47. It says, "...and He was teaching in the temple. uh, The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy Him." Some translations say kill Him. Verse 48, but they did not find anything they could do for all the people were hanging on his words. Uh, I, I love these two verses. The, the scene is that the business is now closed, right? And, and if you will, church, churches uh, is now um, happening. The Lord's beginning to teach. And people evidently, according to verse 48, are very interested in what he has to say. I don't know if you could just imagine the contrast between the two scenes we've seen. At this point, there's no money changing hands. There's, there's no cry of livestock and no arguing over prices. And it's just Jesus. They're surrounded by eager students. And, and He'll teach there for several days. It's this powerful picture of the sovereign king has come home. It's His home. He's in charge now. He's proclaiming the truth. Matthew tells us that each day Jesus was teaching at the temple and each evening he went out to spend the night on the hill called the Mount of Olives and all the people came early in the morning to hear him at the temple. I think it's important to see that Jesus is not simply driving people out to get them to stop sinning. He's now he's now claimed the the temple as his pulpit to proclaim the truth of God. Jesus is, by the way, always teaching. This is the the center of Jesus' ministry. I think sometimes we we uh, well-meaning people think, you know, the center of his ministry was to help the poor. And certainly, he did that. Or the center of his ministry was to feed the hungry, and he did that. Or care for needs, and certainly he did that. But the bulk of Jesus' time is spent teaching. He's a preacher. He's a rabbi, right? And 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 he wants people to know God's word so that they can more faithfully follow him and obey him and entrust him. It's why we gather on Sunday mornings, right? Here and and, and, and and then and then we scatter throughout the week and gather in each other's homes so that what we can do, we can discuss the word. That's what Christ has shown us. That's why we have sermons and Sunday school classes and Bible studies, we want to know the truth as as Jesus has explained to us. And they clearly loved it. I mean, the people were, were hanging, Luke says, on every word. But unfortunately, not everyone loved it. In fact, as we see there in verse 47, it was the religious leaders who, because of his action, wanted to destroy him. They wanted to kill him. And we see this over and over again in the Gospels, that no one ever reacts moderately to Jesus. You, 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 no, no one ever said to Jesus, He just makes me feel so nice. That's right? like being around Him. Right? You either worshipped Him, you submitted your life to Him, or you wanted to kill Him, you wanted to destroy Him. And there's these men who want to destroy Him. The religious leaders. The problem is, as you see in verse 48, they can't because He's too popular. And so they can't just go out and, and kill and kill Him. And so they have to find another way. right? They're not they're not going to give up that easy. They're not done. And we'll see this throughout Luke 20. Encounter after encounter. Uh, uh, There's little warfare going on between Jesus and the religious leaders. And Jesus will powerfully prosecute His case against them. Exposing them as the dishonest, biblically ignorant, power-hungry hypocrites that they are. But the more He does this, the more committed they are to, to His execution, to His murder. And they will eventually find a way to destroy Him. Just as Jesus is making sure will happen. That's the plan. To get these men to kill me. You notice all this is taking place in the temple as we've seen. It's important as uh, we really kind of prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper this morning to realize that the temple is not like a big fancy church. It's not like a cathedral where you have fancy services. The temple really, there, there are really two main functions of the temple. And, and we've already explored some of these. The, the temple was where you would go to meet with God. Right? Now, we know God's everywhere, of course, and God was everywhere in the Old Testament as well. You have a sense of God uh, where, wherever you go, but God's kind of his, his kind of his manifest presence, we might say, or the Bible calls his Shekinah glory. That was in the temple. That's where his spirit was. And so you would, you would, you would go to the temple to encounter God, to be near God, to draw near to God. But in order to meet with God, you would have to bring a sacrifice, and the sacrifice uh, for in order to cover up your sin, to atone for your sin, was the second pers- uh, purpose of the temple. Only sacrifices could take place at the temple. You see, you can't just come and approach God in any way you want. You just can't come to God and walk into His presence and say, "Hi, how are you doing today?" You need to deal with sin. In fact, it's interesting that this is largely kind of unique to the to the the biblical religion. In the Eastern religions, um, they, they would understand God as infinite and absolute. But He wasn't personal. Right? God in the Eastern religions is not personal. He's not, not someone you could talk to. Not someone you love. It's just kind of this mystical oneness that you hope one day to be absorbed into. And then the Western religions in Greece and Europe, God was, the gods were very personal. But they were not perfect. They were not infinite. They were not absolute. And then you have right in the middle, interestingly enough, geographically, but more important theologically, you have the biblical revelation that 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 God is both infinite and personal. Right? He's both transcendent and imminent. He's both loving and holy. And because he's he's personal, you can meet him. Right? You you, you had a temple, but because he's holy. You can't just go right in. First, you have to deal with sin. And this is where our culture objects. And they say, well, what kind of God is that? And What, what do you mean you have to deal with sin? Why, why do you have to pay for sin before you could talk to God? And they will say things like, no, I'm sorry. I have a God of love. Your God's cranky. Right? What, what's this whole deal with sin? Now, the, the Bible actually addresses this issue. And it uses a, a number of metaphors in the Old Testament. Let me just use one that, that the Scripture tells us. It would be as if um, you adopted a child. Some of you, by God's grace, have a, I think we have like 10 or 12 families in this church who have adopted children. Some of you are in the process of that. It's a beautiful picture of the gospel. But if you have adopted a child, you recognize there are costs in adopting that child, don't you? And there, there are, there are costs just to get the child, but then if you have a child, those of you who've had children, you recognize there are costs financially, of course, but there's, you, I mean, you give your heart out. You, 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 you do anything for them. You sacrifice them. You rearrange your life for their benefit. You, you do what you can to, to bless them, right? And, and so let's say you adopted this child and you love this child and you sacrifice this child and the, and she gets to the age where she's ready to go to college and you've saved up a big pile of money because college is expensive and you, you say, honey, here's your money for college. And she takes that money and she never says thank you. In fact, she never goes to college. She takes the money and disappears. And you never hear from her. You never see her. She didn't write. She didn't call. And through the grapevine, you learn that she's moved to the city and she is taking your money and she is living the high life. And she is just spending it on frivolous things, she is just burning through that money with no intention of ever saying hello. And then one day, years pass, the front door opens, and in she walks. And she plops down on the couch right next to you and says, Hey, how was your day? Well, what, what would you say to her? Oh the day was okay, traffic was a bit rough, you know, my boss riding me. No. Oh. You would say, wait a second. You can't just come in here and act like everything's normal. You've sinned against me. You've wronged me. You can't just pretend like everything's okay. And then what she might say to you, wow, you're cranky today. What's your problem? I thought you loved me. I thought you were a dad of love. What's the problem here? And you would say to her, I do love you. And I will always love you. But there is a breach between us that we need to deal with, that you need to deal with. You see, the Bible says we have a Creator. And we are living off His creation. All your talents, your intelligence, your opportunities, your upbringing, your money it 's all his, but that 's not how we often treat him isn 't it we don 't honor him that way. we act like it 's our own, and we, we, we do whatever we want with it, and we take his time and we take his resources and we take his ability and we take you know, we, we take his sexual orientation and we take our intellect and we say i 'm going to do whatever I want with it, with no regard to what my creator says, and then we want to come up to him and and periodically say hi. I'm in a bit of a jam. Can you help me out? And I think God, if I could put it this way, without being irreverent, I think God would in a sense say, you know, I would like to help you. I love you. But you have wronged me over and over and over and over. And that's why there were sacrifices. Because we need to deal with sin. Now, here's the problem. In the temple... They never dealt with sin. The sacrifices never really worked. They had to keep coming back and over and over and doing them again and again until Jesus shows up and in the temple they say, we are going to kill you. And Jesus says, I know. That's why I'm here. For He would be the final sacrifice. So you sinner can go home. So you sinner can draw near to your Creator to a holy God and you could sit right at His side. In fact, the Bible says you could crawl right up on His lap because of the work of Christ. That's what we celebrate in this meal. Because He shed His blood and broke His body, we can go home again. Do you know Him? Not do you know facts about Him, but do you know Him? Have you submitted your life to Him. There perhaps are some here today that may know information about Jesus, but He is in no way your King, your Lord, your Savior. The Bible says "If that you would simply bow your knee to Him in faith, surrender your life to Him. It simply says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is your Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. I'm going to pray for us to prepare our hearts for communion, but perhaps there are some of you who need to pray on your own. Saying, God, I'm a sinner. I need You to save me. Our Father in Heaven, we are thankful for the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are thankful that by His grace, we can go home. And we celebrate the cost of that homecoming. See, we're no better than that person in the story I've just shared. In fact, we're far worse. And yet the breach has been bridged through the death of Jesus. Help us, therefore, not to neglect You. Help us to seek You, draw near to You, delight in You. Help our lives to be a house of prayer a house of obedience and submission. We pray for our Friends here who do not yet know you, we pray that in your kindness to them, you would give them faith to believe and a will to submit their lives to King Jesus. That they too might go home to the God who made them and loves them. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.